Hi, and welcome to The Sustainable Century, where we explore with experts, with leaders, activists, communities of interest, mothers, fathers, and kids, how to buy, how to work, and how to invest for happier lives and a healthier planet. I'm your host, Mark D'Souza Shields. Miriam Collins is a senior communications campaigner at the Sunrise Project. She works on the Black Rocks Big Problem and Ensure Our Future campaigns. Uh, she's worked in the environmental movement for a decade or more on a variety of issues from fossil fuels to overfishing to toxic chemicals in fashion. That's a crazy mix. It's fantastic. Uh, and she works uh, at the local, national, and global level on campaigns. Uh, and she's even spent a little time at sea with Greenpeace on the Arctic sunrise. Boy, am I jealous. Uh, welcome to the show, Miriam. Thank you so much for having me, Mark. Okay. Well, listen, I know, uh, and many of your colleagues know, that you've been protesting and campaigning against companies for years now. And my question is, and you know, I've been doing the same thing, but do you figure they're ever going to change beyond the occasional platitude or bone thrown statement at sustainability? Uh, and then they go right back to business as usual. Are they going to change? Yeah, it's a great question. And I think it's a question that we ask ourselves all the time in the campaign world. Um, and I think they can. Absolutely. I think companies can change. But I think how fast companies change is a direct reflection on where society is. So as society changes and as viewpoints change, companies scramble to keep up with that. Um, so we can certainly pressure companies to change, to do better, to have better business practices. And I've seen it work. Um, how much it sticks and how much the impact sort of reverberates, I think, greatly depends on, on where the rest of society is at as well, though. Yeah, well, you know, I wrote a book... Uh, I guess I wrote it in 2010, 11, or somewhere around there, and it was a bad book. It was called The Sustainable Century by Designer Disaster. It was a bad book because I put too much faith in corporations uh, and in consumers, quite frankly, and investors about, you know, leading the change. I, you know, I don't see, you know, I look back at the book and I go, the same things that I was optimistic uh, about in the last decade, I, I'm supposed to be optimistic about again now? Yeah, that's a, it's a real question because I, I don't think we can expect corporations to lead change. Corporations follow change. Change starts with movements and then corporations catch up. And you can see that again and again in history, right? I, you hear people talk about how pride parades now are just like a corporate takeover uh, and all these corporations have floats out in the pride parades, right? The only reason corporations got to the point where they wanted to float in the pride parade or even stopped firing people for being gay was because of the LGBTQ rights movement that was a revolution in and of itself. So corporations are not the leaders of this change. <laughs> Movements are the leaders of this change and they can push corporations to come along with them. Yeah, you know, but I, I've been a huge fan of Greenpeace all my life and, and, and Sea Shepherd and all those. Has it moved the dial? I mean, have you guys, I mean, you guys have tried, I mean, campaigners have tried their hearts out and you don't see the dial moving a bit that much. I mean, honestly, I mean, what is it going to take? Is it going to, where, is there a tipping point? Like for today, today, for example, I saw in the New York Times that uh, Walt Disney 
uh, Papa John's, Poshmark, and T-Mobile have, quote, unquote, distanced themselves from Tucker Carlson tonight. You know, he said mm -hmm. those awful things uh, that, uh, you know, black life, that, you know, everybody's going to come for white people. I mean, it's ridiculous. And, mm -hmm. and they, dis they distance themselves from it. They should be desecrating this guy. I don't know. Uh, there's a dissonance, I think, between, you know, what, what I think we feel is civil behavior and people making money off of guys like Tucker Carlson. Yeah, absolutely. There's a dissonance because you have to remember with corporations, there's rarely people leading companies that that want to sort of lead a movement or lead change at the risk of their own profits. Mm. Right. Companies companies get on board when they realize that there's enough support for an issue that it is more beneficial for them to follow suit. <laughs> I, I mean, I just think that you see it time and time again that companies start making change when they're sort of forced to by the wider society, by the call for change that they're hearing. And you can create that in campaigning and you can force companies into doing the right thing as they see it's better for them. Mm -hmm. But it has to come from a holistic standpoint. And we also can't, as a movement, as any movement, can't rely on just corporate campaigning, right? We need super holistic changes to be happening corporate change, um, corporate campaigning is a piece of that, but it is not the only piece, far from it. Well, talking about leadership, you know, for the past, I don't know, two or three years, BlackRock, the, the seven uh, trillion dollar money manager who is the focus of one of your campaigns, mm -hmm. <laughs> and I, you call it bit, BlackRock's bigproblem.com, so check it out if you guys mm -hmm. want to see it. Let's talk about them for a minute because uh, I, I seem to recall three years ago, January, uh, Larry Fink, the CEO of BlackRock, came out with his first sort of public sentiments towards sustainability. You know, mm -hmm. and he, he made that nice letter to the shareholders slash stakeholders. And then he did it the next year. And you can see some movement within their portfolio, according to my sustainable and responsible investment friends. They talk a big game, clearly. They've thrown some assets at it. We call them ESG, environmental social governance assets at it. That means they've invested in a way that's supposed to be more sustainable and responsible. But really, it's not that much. And they're all invested in a whole bunch of really awful things. So here's somebody that's talking the game, or supposedly talking the game, but not making the change. Absolutely. So BlackRock is a really interesting example of corporate leadership, corporate change, and the failings of it, I think. So for those in your audience that don't know, BlackRock is the world's largest asset manager. As you mentioned, they manage over $7 trillion of money, right? It's just immense, their portfolio. And as we all know, with money comes power. So as the world's largest asset manager, they have a lot of power in a lot of different avenues in our society. And Larry Fink, their CEO, does sort of view himself as uh, the, the more progressive Wall Street, right? The, the more responsible, more sustainable Wall Street. Um, and for a lot of the years that you were just referring to, I would argue that it was entirely greenwash, right? It was a lot of nice sentiments. It was a lot of him telling corporations to be responsible while not making BlackRock responsible. Um, and it was a lot of sort of nice talk to position himself without um, much actual follow through on his, on his part or on BlackRock's part, really. Um, this January, we've started to see some change, but it's far, far, far from what we actually need in order to 
to sort of tackle the climate crisis from a finance perspective. So because BlackRock is so massive, they're the biggest investor in fossil fuels. Um, they hold more money in fossil fuels than any other company. Um, so they have an immense amount of power through that to either take that money away or to change the way corporations work. And this January, they made a bunch of announcements, BlackRock made a bunch of announcements um, that essentially amounted to Fink, Larry Fink saying that they were going to reshape finance to tackle climate change, right? Which is a very exciting claim. <laughs> and if they really do that, that would be amazing because they do have the power and influence as a company to do something of that level. Now, what they actually announced in January doesn't amount to that yet. Yeah. <laughs> but we want to push the whole company and Larry Fink to go further than these initial commitments and announcements because they, the company has done a couple of things that we say like, okay, nice baby step. We know that things have to happen in steps, but it hasn't matched the rhetoric that oh. came with those steps. I mean, this is the classic modus operandi. And I mean, you outlined it at the, at the top, you know, it's like they're going to follow where society takes them. And, and right now we're just not moving fast enough. We don't have time for, for baby, baby steps. I mean, that's, that's clear. And I just want to point out as well, you know, you talk about fossil fuels, but they're also one of the biggest investors in companies that lead to deforestation and biodiversity yep. loss. And, and for me, they're equally awful problems that we have to face, but I'm very worried about biodiversity. So before we take a break, I want to ask you a question. If you were to say, what, what could Larry do? Uh, or what could a, 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 what could a, a uh, BlackRock do to really shape things up? It's, that they could actually do, that's simple to do and radical to do that would get people not taking baby steps, but, you know, starting to trot at least. Yeah, absolutely. So there's a, there's several things that, that BlackRock as a company can do and that Larry Fink can do as the CEO of that company. And I'll just outline a couple of, of the big ones that we're looking for in our campaign. So in January, BlackRock announced that it would um, uh, have a, a coal exclusion policy, meaning they would be taking certain kinds of coal companies out of in this case, just their actively managed funds. Now, actively managed funds are a smaller percentage of their business. Most of their funds are passively managed. So they made a big deal of this coal exclusion announcement, and it is significant, again, because BlackRock is so huge, taking thermal coal out of their actively managed funds is actually taking quite a bit of money away from the coal industry. The next step they need to do after this first step is to expand that coal exclusion policy to cover more of the coal industry and to pull the coal industry out of their passively managed funds as well. But as you've already pointed out, we all know that coal is not the only driver of climate change. There's oil, there's gas, there's deforestation. So these are all things that they could screen out of their actively and their passively managed funds. And traditionally, right now in finance, those types of funds are only the sort of ESG sustainable funds and, and investors have to go specifically search out these sustainable funds. We want that to reverse. So we want the standard fund to be a sustainable fund. And if an investor just really wants to invest in oil, then they have to go seek that out. <laughs> um, and that would be fundamentally reshaping finance to deal with climate change. But one other big piece of this is how they exercise their power as shareholders. So BlackRock, because 
it invests in so many companies, that means it's a huge shareholder of every major company in the world, just about. So that gives BlackRock a ton of power to vote for change internally at companies. Yeah, I mean, one of the things that bothers me the most, Miriam, is that a lot of, and I don't know if BlackRock does this, but a lot of a lot of traditional or conventional investors will will tell you this. Oh yeah, we'll we'll get out of oil, but we just have to time you know time the market to get out properly. And I just sort of think about this, you know, if if you're thinking about symbolic things that you could do is is divest completely from one company, so like Exxon, and Larry Fink says right. Exxon, you're going down. You're the worst. You're out of our portfolio completely. And talk about having a behavioral effect. I, I think that would be amazing. My, sec, my second choice would be just to nationalize Exxon, but we can talk about that later. <laughs> but I mean, Warren Buffett did it. You know, you tell me it's an investment strategy, a conventional investment strategy. Warren Buffett just got out of airlines. Why can't right. all airlines, not just one? So if you took a shot across Exxon's bow, or whatever you know, major oil company they're invested in. I think that that would be a fantastic, you know, sort of symbolic leadership, and it wouldn't affect their it wouldn't affect their returns at all. Right. Well, that's the other thing is is you'll hear asset managers say um, essentially we can't screen out singular industries or companies because uh, you know our, our fiduciary duty is to our clients and blah blah blah. But one, you have to understand that BlackRock is so big that well, the company has more invested in fossil fuels than any other company in the world. Fossil fuels are still a small percentage of their portfolio right. because they're invested in everything. Yeah. So they could screen out fossil fuels with minimal losses. And there's been analysis um, to show that BlackRock over the last decade has actually lost money for their clients by being invested in certain fossil fuel companies. And you can look and see that the, that the oil industry has been in decline for a decade now when it comes to the stock market, the coal industry similarly. So in terms of, you know, fiduciary duty and return to their clients, they can, BlackRock can do this and start to do it in a way that is also responsible for their investors. Fascinating. But we, we're going to take a little break right now. We're talking with Miriam Fallon. Uh, she's a senior communications campaigner at the Sunrise Project. And we're going to listen to a little slice of Ain't Gonna Drown by the incomparable Ellie King. Miracles are just too damn hard to find Ain't gonna drown in the water Ain't gonna drown in the water Ain't gonna drown in the water Cause the good Lord ain't bringing me home That was a slice of Ellie King, Ain't Gonna Drown. Fantastic music. Uh, that was Miriam, Miriam's choice, uh, Miriam Fallon. Uh, she's with the Sunrise Project, and we're talking with her today about BlackRock's big problem. You can read a little bit about that at BlackRock, blackrocksbigproblem.com. You can follow uh, Miriam if you want at Miriam 
Fallon, one, and that's M-Y-R-I-A-M Fallon with two L's and a one at the end uh, on Twitter and on Instagram the same, just without the one, Miriam Fallon. So, um, Miriam, we had quite a month or two and it feels, it feels like to me like one of those moments in the past where, you know, there was a heralding of change, you know, some change is coming but then nothing happens. I mean, do you feel like this, like the confluence of all this stuff going on, this is a real moment of change or just a big ass bump in the road or, or something else? I do think it's a real moment of change right now on a number of levels. I think we as a global society are ripe for change, but speaking to the US context in which I work and live, um, I think we as a country are very, very ready for change on a lot of levels and I think the past few months have sort of, sort of heightened uh, and and exposed that from COVID lockdowns to just President Trump being President Trump to this moment we find ourselves in now with the movement for Black Lives that feels so powerful. And I think you know when it two weeks ago now when it when this round of um, sort of uprisings around Black people being killed by police started after George Floyd. The first day or two of it, I did feel like, well, we've seen this and I'm excited to see it again, but like, will this one need to change? And I, I think it actually is this time. I have been blown away at how quickly this has come together. And I say that as someone from an outsider perspective, because I also want to acknowledge the fact that this moment has been able to take off like this is due to years of organizing and work by social justice organizers. And I, so I don't want that discounted. But the fact that, the, that defund the police has become not only a sort of household discussion, but one that's actually being taken up and run with in certain cities is amazing and fantastic with the speed that that's happened over the last two weeks. Again, off of you know the work of a lot of amazing organizers over the course of several years. But the fact that that's sort of like lit up like a, a firecracker in this moment is really, really exciting. Yeah, um, and I yeah. think that that push for change will, will um, echo beyond just that specific act of, of defund the police, but to much broader changes, hopefully. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I want to ask you about societal change and come back to corporations for a minute. But, you know, uh, my reading is this, is that, you know, when Nixon confronted the riots in the, in the late 60s, you know, the silent majority was on his side. I'm, right. not so sh I'm not so sure the silent majority is now on the side of uh, conser con conservatives. I, I, you know, I, don't, I won't say all conservatives. I just say, you, you know, on the, on the side of conserving the status quo. Let's put it that way. I, I don't think... I don't think I don't think it's the same. I don't think it's the same silent majority. I don't know. What's your sense? I don't think it is at all. I think it's quite different in this moment. And I think the initial polling that's coming out from the last two weeks is showing that too. The support for the Black Lives Matter movement has skyrocketed mm. in the last two weeks. Um, and that in and of itself is fantastic to see. Um, you know, when, when Black Lives Matter really took off as a concept and as a movement um, after Ferguson, it was very much that sort of silent majority situation where the progressive flank supported it, but the, the average person sort of questioned it or downright tried to dismiss it. Um, and that in many ways has reversed. And that's not to say that like, okay, job done, brush your hands off, but it, I think it's a very different 
context we're working in this time around in terms of the public opinion. Right. It's hard to disagree with that. I think let's, let's go back to, you know, society change. So say we're assuming, you know, that there's some societal change here that is going to provide some momentum towards a more just and sustainable world. What, what could you possibly see coming out this for corporate change as it relates to what's happening now? Yeah, it is a really interesting moment in corporate change. I think we've seen so many corporations come out with various statements um, of support around the movement for Black Lives. And a lot of them are, you know, the equivalent of greenwash. Um, (laughs) But the fact that so many of them are doing it speaks to the fact that they have to do it because that's where society is at, right? So... I'm positive that all sorts of the corporations that are making nice statements right now in this moment will do little to nothing to actually change Mm -hmm. uh, in terms of their internal behavior, in terms of how people of color operate within their specific business, or in terms of where their their money goes to support the movement for black lives or not. Um, But, and, and I'll say that like, they should actually absolutely be held accountable to the fact that they're putting up nice statements without action, the ones that are. But as a movement, it's, signals where we as a society are at that so many corporations feel that they have to speak up in this moment or suffer consequences like that is telling for where the movement is at right and i wanted to ask you know your career as a campaigner and 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 a provocateur over the years have you seen like a moment like this actually lead to something very successful like some successful some protests that have just driven home a point so hard that a comp- it's really moved the needle on a, on a company or a company's performance? Yeah, so it, it, this is a really interesting question because I think, um, yes, I've absolutely seen campaigns move companies on their performance. And then there's always a question of how you stick to it and hold those companies accountable for the changes they've promised. And I've seen this from, you know, the biggest pulp and paper conglomerate in the world uh, stopping their deforestation in Indonesia to the biggest tuna company in the world committing to change their entire supply chain line to deal not only with overfishing, but with the problem of slavery at sea, which is something a lot of people don't know is a huge problem. Um, and, And so I've seen campaigns push companies to look at their entire supply chain and institute changes actually holding them accountable to make sure they do that in the long term is another question. Um, But in terms of like flashpoint movements, like we're seeing now that lead to real change, that leads to a question of how you define change also, because there's like tangible corporate change, but then there's social narrative change that leads to longer lasting political change. Um, I use the example of Occupy Wall Street a lot because it's a movement that's held up often as like a movement that yelled for a while, but didn't have any real change. Um, and I don't actually think that's true, because while they might, you might not be able to tie a direct immediate policy change to Occupy Wall Street, they completely changed the narrative in which we were operating right. during that time, to the point where you had conservative politicians talking about the 99% and the 1%. And those types of changes matter in the long term, because they shift the playing field. Yeah. Um, so it happens on both levels. Yeah. Well, I'm not, you know, I, I'm, you know, I've been in this game a couple decades longer than you. Uh, mm-hmm. And I've not been a campaigner per se, like yourself, but I, I'm, I'm a cynic, you know, and, and part of the cynicism is this, 
is that, you know, the current model for change, I mean, beyond the, you know, the kind of the rash, what I call the rational fringes, the Extinction Rebellion, Fridays for Future, Friends of the Earth, you know, groups like that. Mm -hmm. The whole modus operandi is about monetizing the value of sustainability so that capitalists Mm -hmm. can deal with it. So what is the value of, of, of fixing climate change versus the value of not fixing climate change? Or what is, what is the value of equality versus not fixing equality? What's the value? Ba- so putting biodiversity, whatever you want to put there, you know? And, and for me, the, the, the challenge has always been this. Okay, so even if you say, uh, you know, climate change is worth fixing, then we have to agree on standards. How do we do that? How is it fair for everybody mm. else? How do we put it in our accounting uh, practices? How do we put it in a corporate reporting? How do we put it in our capital prices? How do you do that at the national level? How do you do that at the global level? And essentially what you're doing is saying, like, we have this incremental creep, even if there is agreement on that there is a value to changing climate change crisis, but this is incremental creep that just favors status quo and capitalists as we see it now. And in fact, can it work? I don't know. Or are we just simply conceding the last bottle of potable water to Jeff Bezos and Larry Fink? Yeah, this is such a great question. And it is, um, you know, not a question that we're going to answer in the course of this podcast, but it's Damn, such an important I discussion discussion to to have repeatedly and ongoingly as as a progressive movement not only as an environmental movement but much much broader than that and and so here's my i guess just initial thoughts and and i'd be curious to hear yours as well but on one level i'm with you on the cynicism Uh, on a strategic level the way i look at it though is we have a very limited time to stop the worst effects of climate change and we know that that's what science is telling us and so we have to act now within the system that we live in to try to meet that time frame. And if we meet that time frame, then we will have the opportunity to think, great, is this the system we need to continue with or do we change it from the ground up? So from a climate perspective, I feel like we have to try to change the economy and the way the economy works in this moment because that's the system we have and we have a very limited time to do it. Now, I think that strategic analysis for other aspects of movement is different, right? Like climate change is a problem that came about mostly because of capitalism in a pretty short amount of time. If you look at the span of human history and like needs to be solved immediately. Um, When you're talking about other things going on right now, the movement for black lives, uh, racial justice issues, that's a different strategic analysis to me because racial justice issues did not come out of capitalism. Capitalism preys on them uh, and and exasperates them and the inequality in which people of color live, especially in the United States, but also globally. And I say all of that not being a campaigner in social justice movements or racial justice movements, but from an outsider perspective. And like, I am not the best person to answer that question (laughs) at all. Um, But it is a question I've been thinking about in the last few weeks and thinking about that strategic analysis of like, how we need to tackle climate change versus how we as a society need to tackle our racism issues and our equality issues and our social justice issues. And they are slightly different strategic analyses, but also incredibly intertwined. So it's all very complicated and it's, you know, a discussion we need to keep having. Yeah. I mean, not to, not to throw any water on anything, but uh, you know, in my bad book that I noted at the top, I said, you know, there's no time to change the system we've got. Capitalism is what we have and we have to change. So I kind of agree with you there. 
But I just, the sense of urgency, it, it just doesn't seem to be there in the places where it needs to be. And I just, I'm just hoping that maybe there's a rock that we can throw through some window that will, that will really, <laughs> I mean, not to, you know, and the, the metaphor is apt. I mean, how do you get the attention of people to change in a dramatic way? I mean, nationalize Exxon. That's my <laughs> nationalized BlackRock. I mean, people need to understand that they have to change at the corporate level or else fill in the yeah. blank. Fill in the blank. Yeah, it's interesting. And I think it's especially interesting on the climate question around corporate capitalistic change, et cetera. Especially right now, I was reading this interesting article recently about how with COVID and with all of the shutdowns globally, we've sort of accidentally had an experiment about if individual change is enough to tackle emissions that lead to climate change, right? right. Through COVID, we sort of accidentally had people do basically everything you can easily to cut your own personal emissions. People have stopped driving, they've stopped flying, factories are shut down in certain countries, et cetera, et cetera. So we've seen a drop in emissions, but that drop has not been enough. No. <laughs> and obviously it's not a lasting drop because everybody is itching to quote unquote, get back to normal, or a lot of people are at least. Yeah. Um, so that to me specifically points to the fact that we need much bigger systematic change because for so long you had, you heard corporations saying, we're putting on little campaigns about individual action and everybody has to change their habits. And like, that's true. We do need individual action. We need individual sustainability, but that alone without corporate change, without systematic change won't be enough. And, and the last three months have proved that. It's sad knowledge, but it's good knowledge, like a lot of knowledge. So right. Mir Miriam, it's been wonderful talking with you. I, I really want to follow up again sometime, maybe after things get back to something less than normal, but different from where they are now. Maybe we can talk again and, and see how you're feeling then. But uh, thank you so much for coming on and sharing all your great insights and knowledge. With yeah, it's my pleasure, Mark. Thank you so much for having me. And I do just want to say to your listeners, if if anybody wants to get involved in the effort against BlackRock, please do check out blackrockbigproblem.com. There's an action page where you can get involved yourself. Uh, you can sign up for our newsletter, and there's also an email address where you can get in touch with the campaign to see how you can get involved. Yeah, and it's a great it's a great website. It's a great campaign, and I totally recommend it. So thanks again, Rin. Yeah, thank you, Mark. Well, that's a wrap. I hope you enjoyed the podcast. We've been talking with... Miriam Fallon of the Sunrise Movement. Uh, you can find Miriam on social media at Miriam Fallon. That's M-Y-R-I-A-M. F-A-L-L of Emerging Leaders and Doers in the Sustainability Movement. Thanks again for listening. And remember, it's up. you can also, as she mentioned, check out their work at uh, BlackRockDeeringProblem.com. And remember to check out all the articles, podcasts, and videos on the SustainableCentury.net. And watch next week or the week after, we're not quite sure yet, for some curated videos of our discussion salons leading transformation.